Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shallow, good to get back into this here. We uh, did sort of an introductory podcast last week, covered section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, and then kind of just did sort of an, like I said, introduction to how we're going to approach this. Today we get into Joseph Smith history, and and the reading for this isn't, um, it's not a lot, but this is the foundational myth narrative of quote-unquote Mormonism, right, of right. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And and it's even stated to be such. This is like the, you know, this is the official founding myth, right? Right. In, in terms of myth, you know, we, we want to make sure we, we define that word correctly. We don't ever use – I don't think we've ever used the word myth in context on our podcast to mean anything that's untrue. Uh, the opposite. We're talking about myth in the sense of something that is meta-true, you know, something that is true – for what it teaches and the identity it imparts, which is more important than its historical um, accuracy. And so, yes, you know, there's there's historians that are going to get into all of this stuff, and we're going to touch on that for context. But we're not historians. Um, at least I'm not. You're more of a historian than I am. <laughs> we're, we're not trying to to delve into the history so much as we are trying to uh, really sit with the scriptures and and see what what comes out to us. What is it that that touches us? What is it that um, we feel um, is you know imparted to us as we go through them? And that can be aided by a historical context. But um, you know, as we've discussed, our our purpose here is not to spell out the history of the church. If anybody wants that, um, you know, there are dozens of books and podcasts and, and materials from the church and, and, you know, everything in the world that you can delve in for that type of thing. Today we're doing Joseph Smith history, but it is canonized as Latter-day Saint scripture. The title is history, but uh, we're not approaching it as a historical document. We're approaching it as scripture. This is primarily, uh, at least the beginning, the account, the official account of Joseph Smith's what we call first vision. And that term is is always capitalized, right? You know, it, it has all these connotations for members of the church. And first vision in, in terms of this is what the first time that Joseph Smith sees Jesus Christ. The history of the church and throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, there's multiple times when uh, Joseph Smith um, talks about seeing Jesus Christ. Um, but this is what we call the first vision, his first vision of Jesus Christ. Again, the founding watershed moment 
of the beginning of the church. Um, it's analyzed in multiple different ways, man. Um, I don't know if there's a single story in all of uh, scriptural discussion in the church that is more analyzed and referenced than this one. I'm not sure if there is. I'm trying to think of if there would be one. You know, sometimes Nephi is brought up pretty often. Sometimes uh, Christ visiting the Nephites is brought up really often. A few other things from the Bible. I don't know. What do you think? Is is there anything that's more referenced and and uh, alluded to than this? Well, I'm even thinking about missionaries. You know, when I was a, when I was a missionary, the very first discussion, the very first thing you go, you go out and you talk about is the first vision, right? You talk right. about the Godhead, you talk about Jesus, and then bam, you go right into the first vision. And this is always that part. And missionaries always joke about this. I've talked with missionaries for the last 20 years since I was on my mission. And everyone always laughs and says that this is the part when you teach this discussion that there's always an interruption of some sort. Right. <laughs> the the, the phone's going to call. A neighbor's going to come over. You know, something is going to happen. Someone's going to get hurt. And it's someone's attention's got to be. There's always going to be a distraction. And I remember when I was told that the first time, I was like, nah. And then I started teaching the first discussion, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some confirmation bias going on there, but yes, I, I've heard from many missionaries, right? <laughs> and and it, and I definitely noticed it as well. As soon as you get into this account and start teaching it. Every manner of distraction comes into play, and it's very difficult for you know to try to to keep attention on it. Absolutely, and I I, I love this story for so many reasons. You know, you and I were talking just a little bit before we recorded, um, like we normally do, just to kind of get on the same page and to see what uh, both of us were getting from it. And it's always interesting that you and I usually end up on the same page. It's like uh, just a little bit different. You you notice it from one way, I notice it from the other, but we kind of come to the exact same spot. One of the things that was really standing out to me on this section was before Joseph had, you know, he reads James and he is in this whole experience with all of these other religions. And, you know, as I've read a little bit of the history of the time, you know, from a lot of different sources, I've read all, all, you know, the arguments and how these things came about and a little bit of the historical context. But I think largely in the church culture, when we read the story, we see that Joseph is basically plagued by ideas. He, he doesn't know which idea is the right idea. And that it's that plaguing of ideas that really leads him to wanting to question and to, and to go ask God. But when I read it this time, something else stood out to me. And that was, it was the lack of unity in what should have been a true Christian way of being that was really what plagued Joseph. And, and, and I found this in verse six where he says, notwithstanding the great love, which the converts of these different faiths expressed at the time of their conversion and the great zeal manifested by the respective clergy, who were active in getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling in order to have everybody converted, as they were pleased to call it, let them join whatever sect they please. Yet when the converts began to file off, some to one party, some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of the good priests and the converts were no more pretended than real, for a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued. And I think this is a beautiful thing for him to be able to recognize and to know that more than just the lip service, 
that when you actually go to who and what they were actually trying to get, these people were living in their ideas. These people were battling belief systems as though the belief systems were true. And sadly, I think a lot of the time we still do that, and that kind of pervades even in our own faith tradition and in Mormon culture, in that we we think that the whole point is to actually have truth as a belief and to believe in truth. But Joseph ends up having a little bit different of an experience because he comes into this, as, as I think we're going to talk about a little bit later on, he starts to actually experience truth. And so truth as a belief and truth as an experience, because then he recognizes that he actually uh, has seen God and he knows that he's seen God. He doesn't believe he has seen God. He's had an actual experience. And so I think there's a lot to, for us to be able to say a little bit later on about how the point of this whole restoration and what we get from this story is not about converting people to true beliefs, because that's really, uh, that kind of discussion is what was causing all of the contention that he had before. But what God showed him was that it's not about coming into the true belief, it's coming into these true experiences. So that he was brought into this experience with God, and that is where Joseph knew absolutely that this is what, I mean, God told him, don't join any of the other churches, but the that actual solidification for truth from God was the experience of coming into that relationship with God. So I, I think that's I think it's really cool for us to be able to expound here in a little bit. Well, I mean, I think that's it. I think you got it. We can stop the podcast now. <laughs> that is that is I, I felt this time as well. The core takeaway from this, I think it is it's rather unfortunate that. As a church, we have a culture of discussing this chapter of the first vision in a particular way. And I have seen it done in different ways, and they've been beautiful. Um, but we have a, a habit of discussing these verses in terms of doctrines. And so what we do is we say, okay, let's list the doctrines that we learn from the first vision. You know, and one is, you know, God knows us personally. And two, you know, God the Father and Jesus Christ are separate personages. And three, you know, and we go through and we list the doctrines that we learn from this account. I mean, that's good, actually. Let me, let me, let me step back and I'm not criticizing the fact that we do that. I, I am criticizing the fact that we only do that because that isn't the end goal. You know, Joseph Smith didn't have this experience so that he could learn and teach us true doctrine. Um, he had this experience so that we could learn that we can have this experience. I mean, this is kind of the point that we've been talking about in many of the Book of Mormon chapters, especially the chapters in Third Nephi, that Christ came to the people and he taught them but then he actually gave them an experience to have. And, and just like you were pointing out, Shiloh, that there's not, um, Joseph Smith in this account, he doesn't get into any particular doctrines that he had issues with and that there was a discussion about. His main issue here isn't that he disagrees with any particular doctrine that's being taught. His issue is that there is contention over the doctrine. 
And in fact, I went through and I highlighted like all the descriptive words in these verses here. And a good three-fourths of them are all very negative when he's talking about the conditions and the situation and his feelings and things that are going on. You know, we have in verse 6 words like pretended and confusion and bad feeling, contention against, strife of words, contest of opinions. Um, you know, jumping down a little bit, verse 8, uneasiness, confusion, strife, impossible, unacquainted. Um, he says, cry and tumult, incessant, sophistry, errors, against, disprove, tumult of opinion, war of words, extreme difficulties, contests. And so, you know, he's just using these words over and over again to describe the situation, none of which describe a particular doctrine that is wrong or that he thinks is wrong, but rather the attitude and the the way that the doctrines are being preached and taught is wrong. And he recognizes that it's wrong, but he doesn't know how to approach it and what to do about it. And what's so fascinating to me about this is that he doesn't seem to be acutely aware of this fact, right? Like the question in his mind is which of them are correct. Although what's making him uneasy isn't the fact that he doesn't really know which is correct, but the fact that they are all fighting about it. That's really what's making him uneasy. And so he comes to this, all this confusion and darkness, and then he comes to this moment of this scripture in James that is probably the most quoted scripture from the Bible by Latter-day Saints, right? <laughs> it's a good one. Right. You know, there's a lot of other good ones too, guys. Um, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. And then he he describes his experience in contemplating and sitting with this scripture. In other accounts, he talks about how it's weeks and and days and weeks that he spends thinking about this and, and analyzing and thinking over in his mind, you know, what does this mean and how does this apply to my situation? And it leads him to feel like he needs to act in faith. It, it is interesting that he's going on this con contemplative journey, but he doesn't seem to be consciously aware of the fact, even Many years later, he's writing this in 1838. He doesn't seem to explicitly point out this fact, but it comes out in his expression of the experience that he had. And actually, this is the, the same feeling that I get from his other accounts, is that, again, he's just uneasy about the situation um, more so than he is about any particular doctrine that he has questions about. That's really important. Moving on, and, and like you were saying, uh, realizing that truth is to be had through an experience, not through some particular reception of a stated, a statement of belief, right? And yeah. uh, so Joseph Smith then goes and has this experience. Uh, missionaries memorize his experience with going in and uh, the Father and the Son appearing to him. 
But the pattern here is really fascinating as well. You know, we alluded to this when we were talking about the the chapters in Third Nephi with the destruction and and then Christ coming. That there's always this darkness and confusion, the 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 presence of of Satan, the deceiver beforehand, before the Father introduces the Son, and so um, here we have this quintessential moment where Joseph Smith is almost completely overcome by the power of Satan. This is according to our our narrative of the story, and before he's delivered by the light of God like literally delivered by the light of God from the darkness. How many ways can this be analyzed in terms of like, you know, the hero's journey and and light archetypes and, and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot here. I'm not sure if 19 or 1838, Joseph Smith, you know, realized all the implications of how he was describing his story, but there's a lot of profoundness just in, just in the circumstances. Yeah, man, you have said so much. And I'm like, yeah, I got, I got to say, I want to say something about that. And, and, and so I'm like, oh, but he just said something else. So I've got like a list of like 10 things. I'm not going to get okay, to them all. Okay, go for it. <laughs> so I, I've loved so much what you said. So to step back for a second, because I, I think what you touched on there about that experience that Joseph had was about the contention. That was what he was really looking at. And this has been something that's been weighing on my mind and heart for quite some time. At least, at least a few years now. And this is going to be kind of seeming like it's out of left field, but uh, I I promised to tie to try it in or to tie it in. And that is on how we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints treat those who we perceive as having a faith crisis or a meaning crisis or a truth crisis or a trust crisis. There's so many crises that we've been able to label now of just people who are having a seeming difficulty to their walk with the church. I talked about it. We talked about it a little bit last week and through a post that I had on uh, December 24th on the Latter-day Peace Studies page um, under the, the meme that Lindsay created about the Prince of Peace. And since then, it was actually today, I, it's in a Facebook group. I was, I, I go through and I'm on it. It's an LDS-based group. And it's specifically to try to give encouragement to people who are going through these kinds of transitions. And over the last several years, I've, I've read things from Thomas McConkie and I've, I've read, uh, different books like from, uh, Fowler on, on, on stages of faith development. And I've really come to this moment of seeing what we perceive as faith crises not as a crisis at all, but as a transition of how we psychologically interact with the narratives and the myths and the stories of our religion and how that affects us and how we identify with that. That That's really what's going on, and we're trying to find a new way of doing this. But for those who have not been through that transition and that transformation, it looks like a faith crisis. Like, And there's nothing that we have context to or anyone telling us that what we're going through is not because of our sin. It's not because of something we've done wrong. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because of any reason whatsoever. It's simply because you're learning to see things differently. And sometimes there are triggers and traumatic events or things that we go through or just stresses in life that trigger those things and help us to transform. There's nothing wrong with it. But yet a lot of the times in our faith and our belief traditions, from those who have not experienced that, they don't know how to deal with it. And so 
it gets to be a problem. So today, as I'm in this Facebook group, um, we didn't really talk about this, Ben, last week, but in section one, it has the Lord saying that this is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big, very famous scripture in, in Latter-day Saint circles, right? Uh, come to find out, you know, we didn't talk about this, but come to find out that phrase, only true and living, is a phrase that Joseph Smith used in a lot of different things, in a lot of different contexts. He used to actually sign some of his letters to Emma, your only true and living friend. So it seems to be that this was kind of a catchphrase that he understood, something that he was using in his day. And I don't, I don't know if we have placed entirely too much weight on that phrase in section one, only true and living church, um, than what Joseph actually intended or what he was feeling when he gave that, that revelation, when he wrote that revelation down. You know, we very much put a lot of weight onto it as to mean this is like Christ's singular church, the only true church that has the authority to act in his name with, with ordinances and the prophets and apostles and things like that, things that we believe in that are true, but we place a lot of weight and come to find out there's nowhere else in scripture that I'm aware of where that phrase appears again. That's the only place and that's the only scripture that we hang all of that weight on. Yeah. And maybe it's strong enough to hold all that weight. Maybe that's what it means. But maybe we can be a little bit humble and accepting that maybe there might be more to that and maybe a little bit more nuance to Joseph's idea of what it meant for him when he gave it than how we've interpreted it and use it today. That being the case, in this group that I'm in, someone brought up this scripture asking people like, what do you really think about it? And there's a lot of comments, and it's generally a very good group that, that, that I'm in. But there were a couple comments by members that came in really kind of with a sledgehammer that didn't really need to, to do that. And one of it is, and one of the comments came in to showing that, you know, saying that anybody who has never absolutely believes that this is absolutely Christ, absolutely only church, with absolute authority, with absolute ordinances, with absolute prophets, with absolute, and just in kind of black and white binary thinking, that I've never seen anybody not believe in the absoluteness, and they but they leave the church. And there were a few people I know who kind of pushed back against it, saying, you know, I think it might be a little bit too binary or simplistic, black and white. But it was the response that was given to that um, from the original um, poster said that this person strongly believes that during what what is perceived as a faith crisis, that it's absolutely important to be completely honest, they said, to the point of bluntness at all times. So I've been sitting with this for a while, and I've been thinking about this this afternoon. So I wrote a response to it. I didn't post it. <laughs> but I I decided, maybe I'll read it to, as we're recording. So if not to that post, but just to, to a general audience. Um, And it's this. And this is this is a really close topic to my heart. Because I've lost count the number of my personal friends who've left the church because of the seeming absoluteness and the pious rigidity of other fellow members and their comments who they believed were simply doing their best to tell the truth. This kind of like sometimes binary myopic absolutist view that doesn't allow for any nuance to how we see God and to, to allow room for God to work in that other person's life as they're going through their own transformation that we so often confuse bluntness for the truth's sake, which was what is actually our own ego-induced and projected personal bias from our own strongly emotionally held beliefs. Mm-hmm. We've talked, I've, I've talked a bit to all these, so, I've talked to so many friends, 
and they've left the church. And what's the saddest thing is that almost universally, these friends who have left the church, they, they were creating space for their questions, to have these questions, to be able to stay here in the community and to be here with their questions. And as I've learned, all they really wanted was for someone to be there with them to mourn as they mourned because their identities of how they had attached meaning to certain myths and stories was falling apart. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no one way to view myth. And that's why talking about myth is so important because there's no one correct way to do it. The fact is, is we do it. And that's fine that we do it. It's a, it's, it's human that we do it this way. But when we don't, when we make it to where we believe this is the only way to do it because this is the way that we do it, or that this is God's chosen way because this is the way that it's been done, and that it can't be seen another way, it's just wrong. And so, as I've talked with these many friends, they look and they say, almost universally, once I kind of dig down, and sometimes it takes a lot of conversations, but ultimately what comes to play is that their exit from the church had more to do with the way they were treated by the seemingly pious and devout than it had to do with their doubts in certain beliefs. That they were willing to actually sit there, not fully knowing the belief system, if they actually had a community that they believed that they were a part of and that truly loved them. And so this whole coming down with absolute bluntness and this whole sword of a perceived faith crisis to like render down absolute pure testimony. I read last week from what I wrote in the Prince of Peace, but it's that in these times, that kind of rendering of absolute justice and absolute testimony has far more to do typically with our own ego-induced emotionalism than it has to do with our promptings from God. Because when it really comes down to it, and we have to check ourselves, and that's not to say that we can't reprove with sharpness with the Holy Ghost, but you has to have an increase of love afterwards. And the increase of love afterwards cannot be simply, well, if you felt offended from what I've said being the truth, then the wicked taketh the truth to be hard. That's not the point. We have to learn to realize that our main call is to sit with those who are mourning and to mourn with those that mourn. To be there with someone in how they need to be sat with. We think that we are the sledgehammer of justice and of God's truth, when in reality, we're the ones who are offending the least of these. In our efforts to carry forth truth, we end up hurting the very people we're trying to save. And so as I read Joseph Smith this time, I couldn't help but think of that thread that I had read today. That as Joseph Smith was sitting here, he's like, I, I couldn't imagine the true church as having contention. I couldn't imagine the true church as having this tumult of words and opinions. You know, then we learn in section 38 where the Lord says, I've given unto you, this is a parable, that you be even as I am, that I say unto you, be one. And if you're not one, you're not mine. Unless we're coming into unity and being with each other. And so when Joseph is looking at this and he's realizing that the people here have 
it's supposed love, right? It's the great love by which all these converts and the, and the different faith they expressed at the time of their conversion. They, they were so devout to their conversion, and obviously it was love that they were willing to browbeat people with the truth of God as contained in the Bible. They were willing to beat each other with the sword of belief. This is what I believe the scriptures say. This is what I believe the, the people are. This is what I believe the things are. And if you don't believe this, you're wrong, and, you can, and you're going to go to hell. And in fact, this very myopic view of hell that when Alvin died and this preacher who was more prideful than charitable whispers with an earshot of Joseph Smith Sr. that isn't it sad that Alvin never truly chose a church now he's in hell and this never sits well with Joseph Smith Sr. right it's one of the the main things that keeps him from joining any church but I just wanted to have us all take a moment to recognize that sometimes in our piousness, that we reflect more of the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians than we do of the true Church of Christ. That when we truly know that we're standing as witnesses of Christ is when we are willing to self-sacrifice for each other. When we stand in those moments of persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness, and that we have an absolute pure knowledge that any reproof is only ever as the Lord did to Moroni, that we've talked about this a lot now. It's a liberation. If ever we think that the sword of truth is ever going to be to clobber someone with a belief and to get them to believe the way that we do, we're doing it wrong. We're doing what the people did to Joseph that was causing such a tumult of opinions. When in reality, if we truly want to bring someone into the fold of God and into the relationship with God and into the church of Christ, it's not about bringing them into the correct belief system so that they believe what we believe. It's bringing them into the relationship that they can sit with the love of God. So lots of things I'm thinking about as well. (laughs) While you're talking about that You know, on this topic of like bearing testimony, you know, if someone says they're not sure if the quote unquote church is true, right? And responding with just uh, bearing a testimony, obviously there's, there's different spirits that can be done in uh, a spirit of humility, a spirit of, uh, and love or a spirit of, of condemnation and a spirit of self-righteousness. Um, you know, I, I really do like how Mosiah 18 puts that baptismal covenant because not only is there the mourn with those that mourn part that you discussed, but there's, there's this statement, which I think, um, has quite a bit of depth to it. And it says, stand as a witness of God at all times and all things in all places. Because you're, you're acting in that in that uh, position of taking, of having taken upon you the name of Christ. And in that moment, you're not simply trying to tell someone they're wrong. Standing as a witness of God means that you act in that moment for their salvation. You act in that moment for their reconciliation to God. And it's not about you getting brownie points for having defended the faith. Oh, look, you know, you stood up for what was right. It didn't matter that, um, you know, nobody listened to you or whatever. Um, <clears throat> the point being that 
we we do so often um, think that it's our responsibility simply to speak correct doctrines rather than to actually persuade by all of those virtues that are listed by the of the priesthood right gentleness and love and and pure knowledge meekness we instead think that just stating correct doctrines is is the the path to uh conversion and uh that is uh, when we get to section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, I really uh, like how it treats this subject because it talks about how if we preach and we don't preach by the Spirit, it's not of God. It doesn't matter what we're saying. We could be, we could be expounding the most pure doctrine um, in the exactly correct way, using all of the absolutely correct words to describe it, and it can be false. How is that possible? Because it's not said with the Spirit. It's not done in an attitude of love and persuasion and standing as a witness of God. What it is is it's priestcraft. It's putting ourselves up as a light for the world. Um, on the topic uh, that you brought up of, of the verse we didn't discuss in, in DNC 1, which um, I guess that was kind of like a glaring um exception huh we should have discussed that <laughs> um <clears throat> I, I i had a discussion with uh with a, my cousin a while back and and we were talking about testimonies and and you know people that have have questions about um certain aspects of of either church history or or doctrine or, or whatever which um you know if you don't have a question about it you probably just haven't been reading enough. <laughs> um, and I said something to you, the effect of the things that I can say, you know, in Mormon culture, we have this, this statement, I know, and we use the I know when we bear a testimony in front of a congregation. And I said, there's, there's actually probably a, a pretty short list of things that I have a personal specific spiritual witness of. And there's other things that I am willing to accept as beliefs because they kind of come with the package, right? <laughs> um, but they're not, they're not things that it's like, I have had the spirit tell me um, that this is correct, or I have had an experience in which I um, know that this, this aspect of what I've been taught is actually consistent with the character of God, right? I guess that may be a way of putting it. The statement, the church is true, I don't know exactly what people mean when they say that. Um, it is, it's, it's this rote phrase that people say, like, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this day. You know, it's that first thing you say right after. And I don't know exactly what people mean when they say that as part of their testimony. Um, I, I'd be curious, you know, maybe this could be like a really good survey. Spell out for me specifically, what experience have you had that leads you to make that specific statement there. Now, um, 
I have had experiences that can lead me to make statements like, um, I, I know that God intended for me to have the Book of Mormon and to experience him by reading it and contemplating it. You know, that's kind of more specifically what I mean. And maybe that's what people mean when they say, I know the Book of Mormon's true, right? <laughs> and, and that's just a shortcut phrase. <laughs> but, um, I'm curious, and, and maybe you can speak to this. Do you, what do you think, what do you think people mean if they're being sincere? Maybe people, there's plenty of people that aren't being sincere, but what do you think people mean or what do they intend, um, behind the phrase uh, what what experience did they have that has is expressed by the phrase i know the church is true what do you think i i think the the general phrase is that it's it's like it's it's christ's one church and there's authority and this is where the only place that god reveals truth and i i believe that this is god's church i do believe in priesthood authority uh, I've seen miraculous things. That said, you know, the quote that we had from B.H. Roberts last week, and where he talks about how the Spirit of God moves upon all sorts of people, I think that begins to kind of chip away at that narrative a little bit, in that we have a monopoly. I think sometimes we believe we have a monopoly on God. Hmm. And I think from the First Vision account, I think that the Latter-day Saint culture has evolved in a certain way where we kind of have a, uh, I want to be really careful how I say this because I don't want it to be misconstrued into something that it's not. But I think that we think we have a little bit more of a monopoly on God's nature than what we really have. Because if you really line up every Latter-day Saint shoulder to shoulder and, and ask them a series of questions about what they believe the true nature of God is, well, we believe that God is embodied through the through this first vision. And you know what? From where my testimony is at right now, if I get up into the eternities and I find out that God is embodied, I'm going to be like, cool. And if I get up into the eternities and I find out that God is not embodied, but he simply manifests himself as an embodied person to Joseph Smith and that there's other things to know about the family of man, as it were, as, as so as it's so-called, I'm going to be like, Cool. But the fact that we have the story, that we have this, the authority to be able to seal families together and what that means for me now and how I love my family, what that means for me going forward, I cannot express my gratitude and love for that. And that gives me great meaning with my family. So when I come into the first vision, though, and we see that God is embodied, well, I, I've told it this way before. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father, was my Superman growing up. He was, he was everything to me. He was, he was, he was, he was amazing. But you would never know that for me telling you that he was six foot three, that, that, uh, I shared his blue eyes and that he had four toes. Um, you wouldn't get that from him. So I, I can give you the, the physical characteristics. Now, my grandfather had five toes. Now, it's not to say, and, and that's just one of those things that say, well, you can say that he had four toes or five. It doesn't matter. It's that when I truly know who my grandfather was, it was because I was safe when I was around him, that I knew I was home when I was with him. 
that when I would go out into his 100-acre farm in central Utah, where he had been and my family had been since they settled it in 1853, that that for me was home. Now, that for me is the experience that I want to have with God. I don't want to have this. I think it's great that I know that God is embodied and that, and that I can see him and he stands as a man to me as a man. But I want to go deeper than that. I want to experience God like I knew my grandfather and to actually have that real life human, human experience, but to have that spiritual experience that transcends that. And so when Latter-day Saints say, you know, I, I know, you know, the church is true as based on these stories. I think a lot of the times that's become such a commonly used phrase. I think it's lost a lot of its meaning. And when we push into it, I think, like you were saying before, Ben, with the first vision, we, when you start talking about the doctrines of what the first vision is, we usually get a, state, a list of propositional statements. Like, we know God has a body. Okay, that's one doctrine. We know that he'll come and talk to us if we ask him. Okay, that's another doctrine. We know that he won't make fun of us when we ask. Okay, that's another one. And so we have like these rote statements that we go down the list for. But what actually brings us into the relationship with God? Because if we don't experience that, then from everything I've experienced— the mere statement that this church is true doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and and you know, I I'm not um, attempting to get people to stop using the phrase. I want a discussion about what they mean by it, right? And I I want a discussion more about experience, uh, what people are experiencing. What what do we mean? When we say, I know the church is true, because, um, there may be different people may mean different things. I don't want somebody sitting there who doesn't have the same experience as the person that got up there and says this to say, well, I don't, I don't know that. I must not have a testimony, right? Because yeah, there's so much more to an experience of God than a, a, a belief statement that is only so many words, right? And so I, I want there to be, and, and obviously in like a testimony meeting, you can't, you can't get into all that. <laughs> Please don't get into all that. <laughs> <laughs> I heard on this but, one podcast once, but, but it, I, it would be really nice. Um, and I do see this sometimes, you know, this, the, where the church is not, um, devoid of this, but it would be really nice to see um a a a brief someone share a brief experience as part of their testimony in a way that they can you know describe it in so many words rather than phrases like i know the church is true you know tell me tell me something you've experienced you know that lets you know god is real and that god wants you to be a part of this church because it's his and and I do believe that, but I, I want, again, I want there to be more of a discussion about the experiences that have led people there. And, um, my concern again is with the statements. When the statements are just thrown out, then, then those belief statements are pursued by people as merit badges in and of themselves. Okay. I got my know the book of Mormon is true merit badge. Uh, I got my no Russell M. Nelson is a prophet merit badge, you know, and, and, and we, you know, we like, 
go across these as if these are like check marks of a of a, a well-rounded testimony, right? And I, I I rather want people to to just organically have experiences. And I do believe this actually does happen. But I believe what the our culture does is it suppresses the sharing of that in a meaningful way. And rather, um, you know, relegates it to these statements that to people who haven't had the experience yet can be discouraging and can be, um, uh, uninteresting, I guess is, is maybe the word. And, and so, like I said, I want to see more life to it. Yeah. There's so much I like about that, Ben. I just want to kind of sit with that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as, as I was reading, you know, as you were saying that, I, we kind of went over it, but just to go over it again here in Joseph Smith history, you know, when he's sitting there and he's finally reading James, and I was reading it through at this time, he didn't, he's a 14-year-old boy growing up in Upper State New York. Um, he'd been in Vermont for most of his life, but he came down to Upper State New York, he'd been there for a couple of years, and now you have these three main religions that are coming through with fiery fervor. You know, you got the, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians that he talks about. So his entire context, besides his own personal study, is to what these people are saying. And when you have three competing religions, and they are competing through these belief statements, we this is how we interpret. He says that he he didn't feel anymore that he could appeal to the Bible, because all the different these uh, different groups, it says at the end of verse 11, the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passage of scriptures so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. So when you take the very same verse and you take it in such drastically different ways, how do you, how do you appeal? Now, that kind of reading of the scriptures is a very analytical reading. And that's what happens when you have a belief-based system of religion, because you have to have the correct belief and the correct interpretation of that verse. But what's fascinating is, is unbeknownst to Joseph, in verse 12, it says that he reads this verse in James, and then he says, and I reflected on it again and again. Well, this reflection of it coming again and again, when it says that I, I didn't know how to act, he says, but he says that this this came to him with such strength and with such power that he knew that he had to act upon it. Now, in Christian circles, in certain Christian circles, this is called contemplation. In fact, there's an old Catholic tradition called Lectio Divina that you know we've talked about in the contemplation podcast. But this Lectio Divina is a, actually a way of reading the scriptures. We are not reading it to try to find belief systems. You're reading it in a way that you're meditating and praying over something, and you're allowing the spirit of what that is to permeate into you and, and like to come into your soul. And even though J Joseph is reading this analytically and he's actually what he's actually reading about asking God and, and seeking for wisdom and that God will give you liberally has to do with what he's going to do. There's so many times that we, we, I, I, if we've heard this once, we've heard it a thousand times where people will say, well, I was reading a piece of scripture and a revelation came to me about something else I needed to do that was, had nothing to do with what they were reading. Right. You know, that's, this, that's this Lectio Divina. And Joseph is doing it. Now, the, the, ver, the verse he's talking about has to do with what is his actions, but this contemplation of reflection again and again, 
This is not known and it is a common theme in Joseph's day. But yet he's reflecting on it in this contemplation story that then he's led to come into actually having the experience with God. And this is where I think it ties into what you were saying, Ben, is that when we, you know, we can have truth as belief and truth by experience, like I said at the beginning. And Joseph is now leaving the world of truth by belief, and now he's coming into truth by experience. In that moment of coming to truth by experience, that's when he truly gets the knowledge because then God reveals it directly to him. In this case, it's verbal. It seems to be verbal as the truth, but in a lot of the cases, the truth by experience simply comes and you're like, I, I know this is true, but I don't know how I know this is true, but you absolutely know from the experience that that's true. And so in this way, when you were talking about it, Ben, in saying that I know the church is true, and I love that you were saying you're not trying to get people not to say this phrase anymore. And nothing I said should be construed as, as the same either. But when we say it, can we begin to take our discipleship from the beliefs, the propositional beliefs, and actually pull it down into a testimony from experience where we are truly experiencing God so that when we say the church is true, it's because we've had literal experiences with the divine that you know it, you know God knows it, and you can't deny it. Because when you do that, that's going to look different to every single person. It doesn't matter if, now, like for instance, in the scriptures, um, you know, feeling the spirit is often defined here in uh, the DNC and through Oliver Cowdery's experience, I think it was it section nine or so, is as it's described as the burning of the bosom, right? Yeah. Well, I've never felt that. I've never had that experience in my life. I've never felt the burning of the bosom. So, and I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people in my life about their experience with God, and some of them have. And the most of the people I've ever talked to haven't. But this I can testify. I have experienced God. I haven't experienced God that way. But I have experienced God. So when you were saying, Ben, about if you hear someone saying this and they seem to be saying it with fiery fervor, awesome. And if you don't feel that, that's fine too. Maybe, just maybe, you have and you haven't recognized it. I know that's happened to me. It's like what I've, I, I talk about prayer a lot that, you know, that whole thing about prayer, how I've been praying to God my whole life in a particular way. And I didn't mm-hmm. recognize it until <laughs> like a year ago. <laughs> and, and I, I felt like gypped. I, I thought that prayer could only be in like a particular way and come to find out there's all these other different ways of praying that I've been praying and they're just as like legitimate. And, and I almost needed to have like permission to pray that way. And I gave myself permission and then like everything opened, so many things opened up for me in my relationship with God. A lot of the times it's, it's like that where we're already having experiences with God and we just don't recognize it yet. So, and it's like, there's no language for it. There's no words to it. And there's nothing there that we see other people seemingly having these experiences and we're not. When in reality, man, if I could. If I could give one message to people is that God is, is there with you. He's always already present with us all the time. And man, it doesn't feel like that sometimes. And in the deepest, darkest parts of my life, if someone would have told me that 
that would have been like a slap in the face because how could God be with me when I'm going through something that's hard and when and it's like, how, how can he let me go through this if he truly loved me? But there have been one or two times in my life in those dark places where I, I, I don't know why. And it wasn't because of what I did. It wasn't, I qual, I didn't, it's not like I qualified for it, but I recognized the goodness of God in my pain. And man, that seems like a contradictory statement. It was in those moments when I saw the, when I saw God. It's not like that God was the perpetrator of my pain. He wasn't leading and causing me into these moments. He wasn't guiding me into this. It was I was just in a really cruddy situation. And I was just in a really dark place. And just God was there with me. And he was sitting there with me. And it was almost like I could just look next to him and be like, "God, this this really sucks." And God, suffering there next with me, experiencing everything that I was experiencing, seemed to come and look at me and say, yeah, I know. I'm like, I don't want this to keep going. And God would say, yeah, neither do I. And then it would almost be like, but I'm going to have to still go through it, huh? And it would be this answer of like, yeah, but I'm still here with you. And it was just in that acknowledgement that someone saw me, that God saw me in my pain, that actually gave me the strength that I knew I needed to keep going. Because a lot of the times that in our pain, it's just because we don't feel seen. We don't feel anybody else knows. We don't feel anybody else is there. And sometimes it just takes someone who's willing to mourn with us for us to be able to be like, yeah, this really sucks, but someone gets it. And sometimes just that is sufficient. You know, tying that back to what we said before, you know, if someone with a faith, we see with a faith crisis or something else is going on, something else in their life is going on, we don't need to solve those issues 99% of the time. I'm a person who likes to fix things. Like when my wife is going through some problems, she's going through her, you know, a, a bad day. And I come in there and I'm, I'm like, I'm like, Mr. Fix it. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to fix it. <laughs> and she's like, I don't need you to fix it. She's like, I'll it's fix not about it. the nail, Shiloh. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just, it just needs someone to be there. Right. And, you know, that didn't make any sense to me for the longest time. With God, it's made a whole lot more sense. It is odd how it makes sense, though, because it's hard to describe without experiencing it. Like, I can't explain why that helps. I can't explain to you why that helps to know that someone's there with you. I don't really know how to articulate that, except that it does. And when you experience it, you're like, yeah, I agree, it does. I do know, and so this is something, isn't something that I know a lot about in terms of like mental health, but in my experience and, and through some hearing from experiences of others, that when, when someone is especially experiencing deep depression, the thing that can really hold them um, hold them with us, so to speak, is knowing that they're not alone, knowing that someone's there with them. And this is the, the constant expression of those who are on the brink of suicide is that they feel they are alone. And so, um, this, this, uh, imperative, this covenant that we make to mourn with those that mourn 
you know, really has quite profound and, and far-reaching implications in, into how we interact with those around us in all kinds of contexts and situations. There's some deep nature of godliness in this covenant that we have barely scratched the surface on in terms of its power, right? And you described it a little bit, but it's real. And like I said, it's it's difficult to articulate. Uh, You basically just have to experience it. And I believe that that people have experienced it. And so when you discuss it, people are like, I know what you're talking about, even though you're not quite getting at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because when you when you actually talk to someone when they're in the moment of agony and pain, I've come to find that saying, you know, there's a reason for this. Or I, I'm sure I'm sure there's I'm sure God has something in store for you. Or, you know, this is just going to make you stronger. That all of those statements <laughs> They don't help. <laughs> and, and just in, in reality, they, it's like they make things worse. Yeah. They're at best kind of, you know, unuseful. <laughs> yes. At best unuseful. You know, when you and I used to sell pest control together way, way, way back in the day and we would both come in, you know, I, I would come in sometimes more. I would come in usually with more zeros than you did. Um, and it was pretty rare for us to do that. But when you get that, uh, you've worked so hard that day and you come in without selling anything. Man, that, 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 that feeling is just, it's, it's awful. And when you see around when everybody who is selling right next to you and all the neighborhoods right next to you had done very well and you had gotten nothing and all you were looking for is someone else who didn't have anything. And the minute you connected eyes with the only other person in the office who had zero, it's like, you, you just kind of like, just kind of like nod at each other and you know, it's, it's, it's the pain. You share the pain. And in a lot of ways, we've called that misery loves company. But I think there's actually something divine in that. It's not just that miserable people like to be with miserable people. It's that when we are in our pain, we want to be seen. I think there's a lot of value there. I think Joseph experiences a lot of that. And we'll talk about that a lot through Liberty Jail and through a lot of the trials that Joseph has um, that we'll find there as well. Well, I mean, you you bring up an, an interesting point and made me think, you know, there there is... There is something divine about that, um, but it can go another way as well, right? Um, you know, commiserating um, can go another way of despair, and the the antidote to that is Christ and looking to Him. And it will be Satan that always tries to emulate Christ in many ways, you know. And and we're told by the scriptures that He desires that all be, you know, that we are all miserable like unto Himself, and so. There is that sort of um, counterfeit there that Satan will attempt to throw in by the light of Christ. We we can discern that. Yeah, this so this account of, of Joseph Smith, you know, we get in here into this next part where he he tries to share this experience with someone that he hopes will understand, right? And this really drives the whole point home that we've been discussing. He shares it with this minister that he that he hoped that he thinks will understand his experience. He's surprised at the response. You know, how how often can this happen to us where we have had a particularly special spiritual experience and if we try to describe it to somebody else, like they just don't get it, right? 
Um, poor Joseph in this uh, scenario, he's just this little kid. He not only does the preacher not get it, but he he really uh, derides him for it. Um, and yet Joseph Smith had the experience. He says it's not an amount. It's not a uh, a question of right or wrong belief of doctrine. He simply had the experience. There's nothing to argue about. This is my experience. What are you arguing with? <laughs> right? Right. Uh, this, you know, there was one thing here about uh, about Jesus when he was talking to Joseph Smith, when he said that, when he was telling Joseph that he should join none of the creeds for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that all those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near unto me with their lips, that their hearts are far from me. They teach the doctrines and commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but then denying the power thereof. Mm-hmm. And that uh, he, he says, and he forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things which he said did say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. I always get frustrated when they say that <laughs> that I cannot write at this time. He he's writing about this well, like this is 1838. I mean, <laughs> it's 1838. <laughs> if by not Can this we get the time when version already, Joseph. <laughs> But he says, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon recovering in some degree, I went home. And as I was, I leaned up against the fireplace, mother inquired what the matter was. I replied, never mind, all is well. I am well enough off. I've often wondered at this phrase and about the, the experience of a 14-year-old boy who had seen what he had seen. Um, I went back last year in October to actually visit Palmyra and Kirtland. And so my family went and we, we visited the, the Smith family home. We went into the Sacred Grove and, and uh, was able to tour that area. It was, a, it was a very special opportunity for my family. And the Smith family home actually is a rebuild. They, they found the foundations. They went out and they did an uh, archaeological dig and they were able to find the foundations. And so they built it to the, I guess there were quite a bit of uh, uh, details that had been written down by Lucy Mac Smith and others that had given them the ability of actually recreating the house perfectly, almost like to the inch of, of what this house was, uh, was originally designed. Yeah. So, you know, being in the room and, and seeing the place where the fireplace would have been and, and as, as it is recreated, right. And to kind of go over there and to lean on that, lean on that as well. And to kind of be in that same space and to recognize that a 14 year old boy, after seeing all that, isn't exactly in the frame of the mind about telling everybody. Because you would think that if you were to see that, you'd be so utterly excited to tell everybody about it, right? But yet he doesn't burst out with anything. He simply just tells her, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And kind of leans it, leaves it at that. But then he follows up, I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. Oh, it's the funniest phrase in the whole thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I, I mean, I this this point about you know him not saying a whole lot about the experience here um, actually goes along with the discussion about the different accounts because you know he's just had this experience and it's a spiritual experience and um, you know he he comes back all these years later and he writes it out and 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 describes it and says the words they said to him and everything like that but this is. This is something that he experienced spiritually. It takes time to process that and to fit it into your experience. And at this time in his life, there probably wasn't enough context for him to be able 
to describe what he just experienced. So there's this really interesting thing about memory. So you know, most people cannot remember anything that happens before they're somewhere around two years old. And it's tied with, with language and life experience. So like when you start learning language, um, it helps you, it helps you solidify your memory. And then as you experience more things, you get more context to tie those memories together. And then language lets you spell those out. Now, somebody that knows a lot about neuroscience would, would be able to explain that way better than, than I could. But so that explains why you don't really typically people don't remember much that happens before they're about two to three years old, because that's when language becomes more solidified, ties things together in our memory. We have enough consistent experience in our life in order to contextualize things. Well, think about this time, you know, Joseph hasn't had, this is his quote unquote first vision, right? He has not had enough spiritual experience to really contextualize and be able to articulate what he just experienced. But in the years following, as he has more of these experiences and he comes to understand it better and comes into a way to articulate it, he's looking back on this experience and he's able to flesh it out more. And so that's always been for me the best type of explanation that, that fits perfectly with, uh, having multiple accounts and the accounts describing it differently because the way that memory and articulation works is that over time it it can uh it can actually improve you know a lot of times we think oh you know it's best to record something right when it happens because you'll you'll remember it better and and that's true but actually later you can uh because of experiences you have it can uh, allow you to contextualize and remember things better than you did right after they happened so anyway that was just kind of a, a point i wanted to make about about the different types of experiences and what Joseph Smith just said here. But, but yeah, that phrase, I love how like he just had this superbly, um, you know, experience, superb experience and he saw God and, and how does he describe it to his mother? Presbyterian's not, Presbyterianism isn't true. <laughs> a man, a man of perfect words. <laughs> No, I love that. And I love what you're saying too. In fact, I've come to the exact, the exact, con uh, I don't know if conclusion, but at least where I'm at with it right now, I, I believe the same thing. There is a, they're not my experiences to share, uh, but when I had this, I've had this conversation with others, there have been moments when others have shared their own personal experiences with the divine that they had when they were children and that, uh, and, and some very, very intimate moments when later on in their lives, usually on their mission, was when they they remembered what really happened. It's kind of like this vague memory, but it's that through teaching and things like that, then this this full experience comes flushing and, and flooding back into their memory. And and it really sank in deep. And that's when they, and it became very meaningful to them. And so I've often thought about Joseph in having this experience. You know, I think in church culture, we kind of draw out the videos and about how these videos make this experience look like a long thing. Like maybe it took like a, an hour. Maybe God was there for a long time. And there's a video that they should, that they show in Kimura. I thought it was a brand new video when I was there and saw it at the hill Kimura. Um, I'll put it down in the, into the description notes when I find it. 
but it actually draws in telling the story on all the accounts from the first, all, all the accounts of the first vision, not just this 1838 account, because this one is, uh, what, I think one of four, and there's, uh, there's two, two before it and one after. And so when, uh, when Joseph sees it, the video is actually really fast. You know, it shows God and God and Jesus coming really fast. They're only there for like maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and they're gone. And it was just kind of impressed upon me. Like, what, what if it was like that? What if this experience just came and went really fast? And so it was, it wasn't like a whole, we're just going to be here for a long time with you and like really like have a party in this moment. But there was a specific time, a specific purpose, and a specific thing that needed to be done, and it was done, and they were gone. And what would that what would that moment have been like to an impressed upon a memory of a fourteen year old boy of this context? So, I don't know there were a lot of things that I was thinking about at that time. So, I mean, I, I've kind of uh, gone over, talked about the things that that stood out to me um, as far as this goes. Uh, you know, I, Joseph gets into his bewilderment at, at why he's so persecuted. Um, I think this is something to, to ponder as well. You know, what, why would it be that someone would go out of their way to, to persecute and, and attack him, uh, for him sharing this experience? You know, it seems like it would just be easy to say, well, whatever. It's just a, a kid saying crazy stuff. Who cares? You know, and, and ignore it. Why go out of your way to try to discredit it? I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the motivations there are. Maybe they're, um, maybe they're because they they knew that Joseph was a more serious person, and so they were concerned about how others might uh, might give credence to his story or the the fuss that it would make, or or maybe they were worried about the reputation of his family. That was actually, you know, all out of. Uh, I don't know, altruistic motivations in terms of trying to, you know, keep him from being persecuted more by others. I, I'm not sure uh, wh why it is that, that this happened. You know, I think it's interesting that he, all these years later, says he still, he still reflects back on that and is not sure why it was that he was so persecuted. You know, when I read that through this time, I kind of chuckled because... I was like, clearly Joseph Smith has not been in a political Facebook group having an argument. <laughs> <laughs> where, where there's no friends in those moments. Like, 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 when you have a political ideology and you're fighting and you're arguing with other people from completely different ideologies and you're on a roll and you've been doing – now, I speak from experience, right? I, uh -huh. I've wasted more of my life on Facebook group political posts in like these uh, – especially when I lived in Utah and was and – was, uh, <laughs> semi involved in that uh in that discussion so the the hours that i've wasted in i i knew how these facebook conversations would go like i i, I could lead them i became good enough in these facebook groups to where i could lead a discussion where i wanted it to go and i knew how people were going to respond i knew how these things were going to go and I knew the, the main arguments against what i was going to say i knew how to respond to them in a way that i knew how to kind of like bring them down a certain path it's not that I was intelligent about it. It just, once you've been doing it for quite some time experience. and wasting that much time, you're, you get a little bit of experience and you can do that kind of stupid. It's, it's a really stupid parlor trick. But when, uh, when I was reading through this, I came into this idea that just like politics, um, you know, politics is not a place where you go to find unity. 
it never has been and never will be. You know, people right now are clamoring in this country saying that we need more unity because of all of this disharmony in the political process. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, we've legitimized a little bit of absurdity and brashness that wasn't there before. Um, it's not that it wasn't there before. It just, we didn't put it on national news, but now that we put it on mm-hmm. national news and the American people, it kind of gives license to what was already there. Right. And so when we look at p- the political process and I see if this is really what's happening with Joseph, if there are political people, if, if there are religious people who are arguing, like I've seen people argue politics. Now there's two things you don't talk about on Thanksgiving dinner, right? Religion and politics. And if, you're going to have an argument over religion. That's the same kind of thing as politics. I mean, let's just face it. If you're going to, if you're going to try to argue Jesus, you know, the greatest irony of all, if you're going to argue Jesus, um, you might as well just be arguing politics, right? It's, it's the same kind of stupid, nonsensical thing. But when you get people arguing so vehemently against each other and you introduce another idea altogether, Joseph Smith suddenly becomes not a person who, as a minister who's in this kind of thing of being right, because that's all this religion stuff is anymore in Joseph's day. It's just being right. It's having the correct beliefs and the correct interpretations, and you use heaven and hell as your bait and your and your fear to get people to come to your side, just like you do in politics. We do the same thing in politics. You you convert people through the fear of losing liberties or of, of taxation or of being taken advantage from. Yeah, there, there's a thousand ways to make people afraid to do whatever you want them to do politically. But religiously, it's the same thing. And so if you're these, if you are these ministers and you are doing this and there's this 14 year old boy, it doesn't matter what his experience is. You all of a sudden just see this as a really stupid threat from a guy who's just out here to get, who just, who's just out to get, uh, not experience, but uh, his own reputation out there. And so the vitriol is already going on, and it's turned on him because he's decided to enter the ring of religious experience that is in their arena, and they're already fighting each other for you know people, power, position. And so to have this little 14-year-old kid come along saying that he's had this kind of experience, now he wants to be some kind of standard bearer for what God's going to come and do, that doesn't fly with your particular ideology, you've got to fight this kid because it's just, that's a really weird thing to be able to kind of have out there hanging out, you know? So maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's not what it was, but I can very easily see that if these ministers truly were of just the caliber that they were getting people into a frenzy to come to their side and they were using all of these tactics that are used in politics, but for religion, then it's very easy to see how a 14-year-old boy who's claiming to have seen God to kind of get a really big, uh, you know, to, to attract the attention of everybody to ridicule him and to put him down. I just, I, I can see that develop. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have an argument going on between, let's say, a liberal and a conservative, and you step in and you say, well, you're both wrong, you know, you're going to get attacked big time. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get attacked way more than if you sided with one of them. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. You're going to get, you're going to get it from both sides. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I saw it from here is that, you know, kind of the enemy and my enemy is my, uh, is my friend, but it's just that Joseph stood out. He had a story that was not shared by anyone. And so he became a target from everyone. You know, next week we're going to 
get more into what are we doing next week? Wait a second. I was going to say we were doing more Joseph Smith history, but I'm not exactly sure if we're if we're doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, next week is, Joseph, is the finishing up Joseph Smith history. We are getting into the Moroni story, which is really exciting okay. because, you know, we talked a little bit about the whole hero's journey before. The first vision is really the call to adventure. This is the right. whole point when Joseph is taken into the call to adventure and he's going to kind of sit on it for a little while. He's not going to know what he's going to do. And now he needs a mentor. So the mentor is going to arrive and is going to be the guy who instructs him and is going to show him the way and the path and what, what to do. Yeah, so uh, very interesting stuff with Moroni. You know, again, there's we have this account here that is canonized as scripture of uh, of what happens uh, with Moroni, but then we also have some additional historical context that that fleshes this out a little bit more um, that might be able to bring in some some additional insight as we read through this. So, um, you know, looking going through uh, saints uh, in particular, but then there's um, there's other sources as well from the church and, and elsewhere that uh, can help flesh this out a little bit. So uh, that can help provide context as you read through these verses and and probably add additional insight. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. It'll be a good discussion. Okay, everybody. So until next week, thank you for listening. And if you have any comments, if you have any questions, uh, anything, let us know. We're always interested to hear what, uh, what you have to say. But until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening.